0: I invite you to open your Bibles this morning uh, back to Revelation, Uh, Revelation. We're finishing up a series this morning, a series that we began about three months ago covering the first three chapters of Revelation. Uh, Last Sunday, we looked at the last uh, section of chapter 3 and the letter from the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Laodicea. This was the congregation that was full of itself, but empty of Christ. Uh, a liberal church in many ways, uh, in large part, uh, we said was a, it was an unregenerate church with those in the church who challenged the lordship of Christ over his church, those who thought that they were uh, academic and erudite and well-trained who thought that they were savvy and and spiritual, but they did not know that they were self-deceived. Professing Christians who did not know that they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, who, the text says, sickened the Lord by their lukewarmness, who made him want to vomit them out of his mouth. Now, uh, just to make you aware, I mentioned uh, uh, this last week as well that there is a, a, a document. Uh, it's just one page uh, that's available in the foyer. You can some of you pick that up on the way in. Uh, it's, it's available if you want to grab that on the way out today. And on the one side of this uh, uh, this uh, uh, document is a chart uh, comparing uh, and contrasting the seven churches of Revelation two and three. I mentioned that, just trying to summarize all the ground that we've covered uh, up to this point regarding those uh, seven churches. And then on the back, I included uh, from this last Sunday the list of 15 steps to becoming a lukewarm church, which is essentially a list that was adapted from a message preached by uh, Jerry Ragg. Uh, It's a list that many of you said was helpful. Uh, It was certainly helpful to me, because, as I said, when we think about a lukewarm church, most people think about a church that used to be uh, growing or a, a church or ministry that used to be exciting that isn 't like that anymore uh, that 's more dull and and dated uh, a church that is made up of Christians who once walked with the Lord and were on fire for the Lord and then simply cooled off so so people tend to think about. I think this idea of lukewarmness in in emotional terms, that there were these folks that were super excited about the Lord, and then those things just sort of went away, and they became very bland in their zeal for the Lord. But that's not really, I think, what Christ was concerned about. Christ was concerned because a lukewarm church has generalized the truth of Scripture, uh, a lukewarm church is, is a church that has abandoned biblical standards and gospel preaching. Uh, a church where social gospel efforts have supplanted any real gospel ministry. And so there's this this uh, inclusivity that prevails in the church. Uh, there's a biblical view of, of leadership that is sort of turned on its head. Uh, churches like this won't endure sound doctrine as Paul Uh, Told Timothy in 2 Timothy that he must preach the word, uh, that that's really the only solution for those who won't endure sound doctrine and simply want to have their ears tickled. But that's really what lukewarmness is about. Lukewarmness is not an issue of, 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 of not being as emotional about Christ as you used to be. Lukewarmness is about theological and doctrinal compromise that then leads to all other kinds of problems within church life. So this is what it means by lukewarmness. And this kind of church is found in every generation. In fact, it's right here in our backyard. In fact, I pass a church on the way to the office every week that's just like this. Um, I went to their website this week to see what they had to say as far as a, a doctrinal statement. And so I clicked on the tab for their church that was simply titled Beliefs. This is what they have to say beliefs are beliefs are as individual and different as members of a family one thinks one way one thinks another we accept those differences for we have found it broadens our horizons helps helps us look beyond our thoughts to the thoughts of others it opens our eyes and our minds to a greater understanding of the human spirit and god's spirit through christ so our shared beliefs and then they have these 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 bulleted on their on their webpage, and there's only four of them that they list. Number one, we believe that each person is unique and deeply loved by God. Number two, we accept everyone wherever they are on life's journey. Number three, as 21st century individuals, we know we need to reinterpret the teachings of Jesus for our contemporary lives. Number four, We believe that faith requires deep thought and deep feeling. So I'm just saying, folks, that's that's what we mean by generalizing the teaching of Scripture. That's what we we mean by minimizing doctrine and minimizing precision. That is an example of a lukewarm church, or as we said, it's it's an example of a church that makes Christ gag. Now, today we want to take... Sort of one final look at this section of revelation and highlight some things from this particular series that will hopefully help us in our own walk with the lord as, and also help us hopefully as a as a church so i 'm just going to give you these three things in a moment three three principles, and of course, there are so many this was actually the, maybe the more difficult of the messages to prepare because when you're just teaching verse by verse and you're working through passages, you have sort of some tracks to run on. In this case, this, wasn't, this isn't even going to be really a summary of these three chapters. It's just sort of things that were on my mind as we were going through this particular series and maybe things that I didn't uh, really highlight as we were going through those particular three chapters. So just, just three principles. Uh, It would have been nice to have had seven with all the times that we've uh, made reference to the number seven over the past uh, number of weeks, but just three of these things. And I I thought we might begin our time by going back to a quotation from Martin Luther that I mentioned at the very beginning of this study where Luther said this, there are only two days in my calendar, this day and that day. There are only two days on my calendar, today and that day. Or to think about it another way, there are things that ought to concern us, what Christ is doing now and what Christ will do in the future. And the book of Revelation focuses our attention, I think, on both of these aspects, Certainly it has much to say about that day as it takes sort of the wrapper off of tomorrow and gives us a guided tour of the end times, the end of human history. And the majority of the book is futuristic, prophecies about the end of human history that ought to be read and understood and ought to serve as a, as a dynamic force in our lives calling us to greater service and faithfulness and steadfastness. But this book, as we've seen, also reminds us that the seasons of the life of God's people until Christ returns are always the same. That doesn't mean that the circumstances are the same, but our need is universal. Our need is singular, and it's always been the same. Whether we've been in a season of freedom to worship as we've been in our nation or whether we happen to be in a season of persecution where we are hated and our gospel message is maligned, or whether we live in a time when the fruitfulness of ministry has been allowed by God to flourish, or whether we live in a season when the church appears to have less of an impact due to theological and moral compromise. All across the globe, the Christian's need is universal. We need to know our Savior. And we need to know His place in our lives. So whether you're living in the 21st century sitting in the worship center of Faith Community Church, or whether you're an old patriarch and last living apostle imprisoned on some island in exile, we need the same thing. We need what the Lord in His kindness gave to John on that extraordinary Lord's Day. To see the matchless splendor and intimate watch care of our risen King. And that brings us to really this first principle, which has been, I think, so clear in our study of these three chapters, and it's this Christ's person and present ministry are central to the life of the church. Christ's person and present ministry are central to the life of the church. Yes. Christ will judge the people of the earth as the sword of God's righteous wrath falls upon a rebellious world. And yes, he will someday soon and suddenly be visible and physically among the nations with his church. But what about this day? What about this day? And what is Jesus doing now? Well, if you want to turn over, if you'll hold your place there in Revelation and then turn for just a moment over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, keeping in mind that at this point, as, as the book of Acts opens up, the, the Lord's work of redemption, His cross work is completed. Christ has provided sufficient atonement to satisfy the wrath of God. He has done His atoning work, and God has raised Him from the dead to validate His satisfaction. And over a period of 40 days... Jesus appeared or presented himself to the apostles alive from the dead, and he instructed them. And picking, picking it up here in verse 6, Luke writes So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men, or two Uh, angelic beings in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And that's where he is now. Having physically... "...departed from the earth and ascended from the Mount of Olives, in heaven as the God-man, his glory restored, with his Father, according to John chapter 16, verse 28, at the Father's right hand, a a position of power and strength and honor, according to what Peter preached in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2." Verses 32 and 33. And while we, re- we rejoice over what Jesus has done, and while we look with great anticipation towards what he has promised to do, we often fail to consider what Jesus is doing right now, today, in this very moment. And yet, Scripture is not silent on the matter of how Jesus spends his present time and energies Jesus is not on, on some kind of vacation or or sort of kicking back, waiting for God to give him the go ahead and to return to earth. He is uniquely and intimately involved in our today. Doing what? Well, several things. Jesus Christ is ruling the universe from his throne of glory. Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter one, verse twenty. He's speaking of Christ and and when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the power, the power of Jesus is not lacking in his physical absence, but is rooted in his heavenly position, according to Paul. And he currently resides in the most prominent position of influence and authority in all the universe. Actively ministering to and engaging with all of his creation. So he's ruling the universe from his throne of glory. Secondly, the enthroned Christ is mediating as our advocate and our high priest. He's interceding for us. Tim just read this a moment ago. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 to 34. Paul says, "...he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will will bring a charge against God's elect?" God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Verse 25, therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. So even though our Lord Jesus Christ rested in His completed sacrificial work, He continues to intercede and and advocate for us, His people, pleading the merit of His own atoning sacrifice when the believer sins, according to 1 John. Constantly applying His sacrificial work and making it effective in the justification and sanctification of sinners. Ever making intercession for those that are His. Pleading for their acceptance on the basis of His finished sacrifice. Defending them against their accuser. Making their prayers and service acceptable to God. Ministering to them, Hebrews 4 says, in time of need. Moreover, Christ is making preparations for us making preparations in heaven for us. You remember the words of Christ to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That is to say, Jesus is eagerly and eagerly anticipating your and mine, uh, my arrival into glory and is actively making arrangements for us right now. This world is not our home. Our, our citizenship is elsewhere. Jesus will come again and take us to our rightful dwelling place with him. But right now, he is actively preparing for our arrival into the fullness of what he has in store. And then you could add to that list... That the risen and, and glorified Christ is, as we speak, building his church. He is building his church. He himself being the cornerstone on which the church is founded, says 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. He himself establishing the church and building it on the apostolic witness to the truth about him, according to Ephesians 2, verse 10. So he is governing his church and administering his rule through godly leaders whom he has given to lead and to shepherd the flock. And he is adding to the church. You remember in Acts chapter 2 verse 47 it says that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The one who is the Lord, the one who is the Lord of the church, he is still at work. He is saving, he is directing the, the progress of the gospel. Jesus Christ has his people. He is opening their hearts to the preaching of the gospel as he did with Lydia in Acts chapter 16. He is adding people to the church. And we know all of these things. And the early church would have known them. But there was more that they needed to know about Christ. And so God gave to them the book of the Revelation at a critical period for the church. Sixty years had passed since Christ ascended back to the Father. The Apostle John had, had been banished to the island of Patmos. By this time, Christianity was hated and considered dangerous. Under the rule of Domitian, emperor worship had continued to escalate. Martyrdoms were taking place. Some claim that during Domitian's reign that 40,000 Christians were slain. And to make matters worse and more discouraging, five of the most well-known churches in Asia Minor had already begun to compromise and to buckle under the hostility against Christianity and constant bombardment of false teaching. So the Lord, at this time, gives them this word, this revelation. But interestingly, even before getting into prophecies about the future and his dealing with the nations, and even before he addresses them in the seven letters of chapters 2 and 3, he gives them this opening vision in chapter 1. And the reason for this was to give comfort And to challenge his people about faithfulness and to to demonstrate that he is sovereign in his church. That we ought not be the kind of church where false teachers are tolerated as one of these churches was doing. That we ought not be the kind of ministry that tolerates immoral lifestyles as another church was doing and tolerating. That we ought not be proud and busy in the activities of ministry but showing no love for Christ or one another that we ought not be a church that shows no conviction at all and is vanilla about every matter of truth. One church, known for its influential reputation, was just all show and no substance. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead, Christ told the church at Sardis. So, by the time this revelation came, God's people needed an exclamation point on the mission mandate. And that would serve to be an exclamation point for all of us. A comfort and a warning. You see, we need, our, we need to have our hearts and our, our imaginations captivated by a vision of the matchless, matchlessness of the splendor of Christ. Because we can sing the songs all day long. We can sing all day long, all I have is Christ. But if you don't know who Christ is, and you don't know what Christ does in his church, you're never going to stand as faithfully as you could and should. The Lord knows his people. And he promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. And he is with us. And he sent his spirit to dwell within us and to renew our minds and to to give us strong faith and to make us clean on the inside and holy on the outside in our conduct. And he knew that the time had come when his last living apostle, John himself, would be leaving the earth soon. And his exclamation point was so needed by the church. And so a little over six decades after Christ's resurrection, in the year A.D. 96, on a Sunday no less, this is what John saw and heard. And I'll draw your attention to John chapter 1 beginning in verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were, like, were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, "'Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you've seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things.' As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What you have here is the majestic splendor of the king as he calls his servant to write and as he describes who he is. As he gives John a vision for all of God's people. The revelation of the Lord in his church to his church. One that is so fundamental to our mission. And so fundamental to our everyday life. Because it it called their attention and it calls our attention to one more aspect of Christ's present ministry. Namely, his evaluating church life. His evaluating church life. This is about Christ as Lord and head of the church, the one who is in the middle of the seven golden lampstands or the seven churches, says verse 13, and the one who walks among the seven churches, according to chapter 2, verse 1, churches whose purpose is to bear the light of Jesus Christ and the light of his word. But if they're ever going to be faithful in that task, they must grasp this vision of Christ and His intrusive and imposing presence within the church. He alone walks in the midst of the lampstands. And He alone is to rule His church. He is in the place of absolute supremacy and centrality in His church And he is the hub, therefore every spoke in the church must intersect in him. He is also also the one with penetrating and omniscient eyes, watching every worshiper, noticing every act of service, seeing the true condition of every person's heart. And nothing escapes his attention. How many times did we find Christ in these letters telling the churches, I know. I know, to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. To the church at Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. To the church at Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. To the church at Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. To the church at Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. To the church at Philadelphia, verse 8, I know your deeds, that you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied My name to the church at Laodicea, verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. And you think you're rich, and you think that you've become wealthy and have need of nothing, including me. But I know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, without clothing. So whether good or bad, Christ says, I am the one who sees. Who not only sees you, but sees through you. He says, I know your circumstances. I know where you are. I know where you live. I know what you've done. I know what others have done to you. I know your hearts. I know your character. I know what you lack and need. I know what, what, you, what you need the most from me. And one day... All of these things will be revealed, even the motives. But Christ is paying attention now. When he sees his people suffering and standing fast fast and striving for faithfulness, he comforts them. But when he sees them acting in pride or being complacent or, or playing fast and loose with his word, he will take issue with his own. We need to be reminded that Christ will judge sin wherever he finds it. He is the one with eyes like a flame of fire and with feet like burnished bronze. He is constantly weighing our churches, measuring our ministries, assessing our inner affections and attitudes, and our outer actions and activities. Jesus is evaluating church life. Even ours, now that brings us to our second principle sort of, sort of takeaway here second takeaway christ 's approach to each local church is similar but unique christ 's approach to each, each local church is similar but unique and you can see this more clearly in that the chart that I mentioned that I, uh, that I mentioned was available, the similarities and the differences. Of course, all of the seven churches in Asia Minor were established around the same period of time within ten years of one another. They all had the gospel entrusted to them. They all had the spirit of Christ to lead them. They all had the promises of God to encourage and strengthen them. And they all had the same mission mandate. But there were also things about them that made them different. And, And so no two were identical. And all along the way in our study we pointed these things out. The particular pressures that they faced, political pressures, social and cultural pressures to conform to the world, or threats from within such as false teachers or teaching, or sin that if ignored would, would grow and permeate the church body, attitudes of spiritual superiority, compromise and making particular sins respectable, being soft in repentance, the sin of, of 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 being pharisaical and majoring on the externals while ignoring the heart behind it, formality, the love of earthly comforts or the love of worldliness, the idolatry of reputation, the fear of persecution and reproaches for Christ, not humbling oneself under the word of Christ, a failure to love Him, complacency, pride and self-sufficiency, and growing dull in God's word. And yet there were two churches of the seven who were obviously not perfect, but there was no glaring flaw. You remember these. The, one was the church in Smyrna. This was an impoverished and persecuted congregation that was slandered by many, and many in the church were imprisoned or sentenced to death, and yet they counted it a privilege to believe and to suffer for the name of Christ. They understood that martyrdom was a lifestyle, not just an event at the end of one's life. They understood that Christianity cost you something. Then there was the church in Philadelphia. A modest church, an unassuming church, but a faithful church where the enemies of Christ were forced to bow and to acknowledge God's God's special love and care for His people. A fellowship that was word-centered and steadfast. And most of the churches did receive a commendation from Christ for something. For example, their loyalty to Him, their their love and service, their faith and endurance, or perhaps their determination to be pure, although one of the seven churches received no praise from Christ. And this was the church in Laodicea, the church that made Jesus sick because they weren't definitive about anything. But all that to say that, that each of the churches had unique features. All of them had distinguishing marks or dominant traits, some good and some not so good. And there were those who were more pleasing to God than others. But what's interesting to me is how Christ speaks to each one. There's a sort of general structure to the letter, but the Lord Jesus knows that there are different kinds of churches with varying degrees of sin and suffering, and He deals with them accordingly reminding them of particular things about himself, his attributes or his position as the enthroned Messiah or his role as head of the church, assessing their condition and circumstances, diagnosing any problems that may have have been present, prescribing specific solutions. But what you'll notice is that Jesus was willing to speak to them about the good, the hard, and the bad things. If there were good things worthy of praise... He commended them for it. If there were hard things, difficult things, enduring trials or various forms of suffering, He wanted them to know that He would not forsake them. And He wanted them to know that the test wasn't to destroy their faith, but to prove their faithfulness. That He would never allow their salvation to be destroyed or their faith to fail, because He is interceding, And He is protecting their faith. And if there were bad things, areas of disobedience or sinful things, Jesus brought those issues up as well. He didn't sugarcoat them. He hit them head on, but only after pointing out those things in the church that were commendable, if there were any. And there's something about that approach that ought to inform our discipleship and our counseling conversations we need to understand that there are different kinds of Christians just as there are different kinds of churches. I think about this a lot, uh, doing a lot of, of counseling, not only in our church as a pastor, but as well serving alongside of many others in our church who are involved in our counseling ministry uh, that reaches out into our community, that there are different kinds of, of believers. There are, there are Christians who have left their first love, uh, there are Christians who are full of, of good works, but who struggle in their stand for Christ. They're, they're tempted by the fear of man, and they're afraid of rejection. There are those who are trying to fit in with the world rather than standing out. Uh, there are those who profess faith in Christ, but have some sort of covert lifestyle, some sort of some secret life of shame, and they're not dealing with corrupting influences in their life. There are also some who are coasting spiritually, again, like the church at Sardis, who is really living off of a past reputation, but there was no vitality, no, nothing going on in, in the present, struggling with complacency. There, were the, there are those Christians who have been faithful, but have little strength. And there are those who are proud and self-reliant and don't see their problems, In fact, I told someone yesterday, I was meeting for counseling, that when the Lord shows you your sin, that that alone is a reason to praise God. It's like just the fact that God would give you the eyes to see your own sin against him. But there are those who don't do that. There there are Christians who don't always see that. And that's one of the challenges in discipleship is to get people to, to see their lives as God and Christ see them. And as we counsel and as we disciple and as we teach, we need to recognize these differences. Not everyone needs a rebuke. And not everyone needs to be comforted. Paul told the Thessalonians in his first letter to them in chapter 5, verse 14. Our pastor will be in this passage of Scripture, this section of Scripture soon. First Thessalonians 5, verse 14, Paul wrote to the church and said, "...we urge you, brethren... Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. That is to say, people are different. Some are obstinate or or lack self control, who who are undisciplined, or, or maybe they're just busybodies. Some are faithful in some areas but struggle in others. I think this is what he refers to here when he uses the term faint-hearted. It's actually a term that literally means few-souled. I believe he's saying that that these are people that have some areas of their life together, but they struggle in other areas. And so they're faithful in, in some ways, but they're struggling with doubts and anxieties because they perhaps have misunderstood or misapplied Scripture. Maybe they're despondent in regard to their own sin. Or perhaps they, they've been shaken by their circumstances. But they're striving for faithfulness. So what do we do in those cases? We, 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 we take the good, right? We build upon the good. And we try to strengthen those things uh, that remain. Others are weak or without spiritual strength against the, against the forces of temptation. Or they have, in some cases, when this, Paul uses this reference to those who are weak... Some believe this is speaking about those who who stumble easily, those who who have, according to Paul's writings in in other places, a, a weak conscience. And it's our job as believers to discern what they need. And our approach must be specific and targeted. Maybe we rebuke and warn, or maybe we console them, or attempt to hold them up. It all depends on the situation. We need to follow the example of Christ here. We need to minister as Christ ministered, knowing the people, caring for them, addressing the need, and willing to talk about the good, the hard, and the bad. Principle number three. Principle number three. Christ's opinion is the only one that matters. Christ's opinion is the only one That really matters. When Jesus speaks, he speaks with authority. And John was reminded of this there in chapter 1, verse 15. It says that Christ's voice was like the sound of many waters. In other words, when he speaks, he drowns out all other voices. And when he speaks, we must listen. And whatever he says is absolute truth because he is holy and cannot lie. And he will always have the final word. His word is the final word. And his word is clear. Which means that his will for the church is not fuzzy. In fact, even in these seven letters, it's pretty clear the purpose of the church. And what Christ desires from his people. Love fidelity, holiness. Of course, Christ wants us to love Him. That is who Christians are. Christians are those who who love the Lord Jesus. Matthew 10, verse 37, Jesus said, He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who, who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So He expects us to love Him, and not only love, but but the guarding of the truth of the gospel is a major concern of Jesus Christ. Christ not only wants us to love Him and to suffer bravely for Him, He wants us to believe Him and hold fast the truth about Him. It's striking that according to these letters, love and truth are both marks of a true and living church. And the Scriptures hold love and truth together in balance. Because love becomes sentimental if not strengthened by truth, and the truth becomes harsh if not softened by love. We must preserve the balance of the Bible that tells us to hold the truth in love, to love others in the truth, and to grow not not only in love, but in discernment, according to Philippians 1.9. Christ loves the truth. He speaks the truth. He is the truth. And therefore, central Christian truths cannot be compromised. For example, the doctrinal truth concerning Christ, that He is Jesus of Nazareth, the unique God-man who died for our sins and was raised from the dead to be the Savior of the world and the Lord of lords. If Jesus is the divine Lord, we must submit to Him as our Lord. If He is the divine Savior, we we must trust in Him as our Savior. There is no room for negotiation or appeasement here. But another central truth, which we cannot at any price, which cannot at any price be sacrificed, is an ethical one, and it concerns holiness. The Christian faith is essentially concerned with the person and the work of Christ on the one hand, and the life of righteousness on the other. That is to say, true Christianity exalts a biblical view of Christ and, prom- and promotes a biblical view of holiness. To deny Christ and to follow evil are to surrender the citadel of Christianity to the enemy and bring down the standard of holiness. The Apostle John's first epistle is devoted to this very theme, that those who are born of God both believe in Christ and practice righteousness. Both walk in the truth and walk in the light. To deny that Jesus is the Christ is to be a liar, John says. But to claim to know God and to disobey His commandments is to be a liar as well. These things are clear. We have no right to redefine the church. We have no right to compromise the purity of the gospel in an effort to become or to gain some kind of cultural popularity. We have no right to redefine love and to make tolerance the ultimate goal. We have no right to tinker with the truth in an attempt to be relevant or to have influence. Christ did not redeem us so that we could do what we want or what we think is best. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds, to love him, to worship him, to fear him, to obey him. And when the church fails to do that, the answer is also clear, and you see it multiple times in the seven letters. Repent. Repent. Repent and adopt Paul's definition of true success. True success in ministry, true success in church life. He writes this in 2 Corinthians five nine. Therefore, we also have as our aim, our goal, our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That is every believer and every church's primary duty, to love and to obey our heavenly king. Faithfulness, faithfulness to him and to the word of his perseverance. Well, there's so much more here. It, it seems like we've only scratched the surface these past few months, but, but it has been rich. I, I've enjoyed it so much. It's been my joy and delight to to bring God's word to you, but I'm looking forward to getting back to our series, our back to our study in First Thessalonians, as Shane returns to that, Lord willing, next Sunday. Let's stand for prayer. Lord, sometimes at the end of a series like this, we just want to say how sorry we are. Sorry and grieved that while you are in the midst, our midst, loving us so intimately, caring for us so patiently that we walk over your grace. Lord, we don't come back to this vision of you often enough. We don't come back to these letters often enough. We're not comforted by it. We're not convicted by it. We don't believe that it's true, that you are in the midst and that you never leave us. We don't believe that you are pure and righteous and that you want a pure and a holy people. Forgive us, Lord, for not being what we should be. And make us, Lord, what we should be. Because you love and you cherish your church. Bring us to the place where even as we read the warnings to these churches, that we are sobered and we are reminded of the call upon our lives personally and the call upon our church to love you, to be devoted to you, to be devoted to the truth and careful with it, and to overcome by faith, to endure, to persevere, knowing that, Lord, you will not lose a one. Thank you, God, for the privilege we've had over the weeks to study these chapters. And, Lord, we pray that you would seal these lessons, these principles, and particularly, Lord, what we've learned about you and your majesty and your glory and your lordship and your reign. Help us to apply these things, Lord, to our lives for your glory and eternal praise. Amen.